invite you to turn, if you would, in, in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Our scripture reading is going to be from verses um, 3 through 14. Although in your English translations this is broken up into uh, several verses, what is remarkable about this passage is that uh, in the original Greek itself it is one long sentence. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, strings together almost an innumerable number of thoughts about God's working in grace. And the fact that in the Greek it is one long sentence uh, says to us, Certainly it says to those who are New Testament commentators who are conversant in the Greek uh, that this should be considered one long thought in which ultimately in the mind of God there is no break. There is a unity to everything that is said between verses 3 through 14. An unbreakable unity, the nature of God's grace. Beginning to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, such deep thoughts require help from heaven. And so we pray for the working of your Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and minds to an understanding of your word. And we even pray, Lord, that you would enable the one who speaks this morning that my voice, my words, will be guarded and guided by the working of your spirit so that they would stay in conformity with the truth of your word so that what we, your people, hear this morning would convey to us the very message of your grace. This we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, once again, we're coming to the Word of God this morning, thinking about October, thinking about this month, thinking about the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We know that at the end of this month, those who are nurtured strongly in Protestantism recognize the 31st of October 
back in 1517 as the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the church at Wittenberg Castle in Wittenberg, Germany. And, and that inaugurated the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, about 100 years after the Protestant Reformation had, had, be, had really matured, the theologians and pastors and scholars looked back upon that time and recognized that what God had done in terms of reviving the gospel and reforming the church uh, really was concentrated on five necessary themes of the gospel, necessary themes for the revitalization and the reformation of the church. And these, as we mentioned last week, happen to be, first of all, Scripture alone is the ultimate authority upon we base everything in terms of the Christian life and the church and doctrine. And then grace alone, the fact that God saves us by his grace and nothing to be added to it in terms of the works of men. By faith alone, a faith that is never alone because it will issue in good works, but it is faith itself that is the instrument that connects us in the grace of God to God's declaration that we are just and righteous in His sight. All of this grace is done for us, accomplished for us, performed for us by Jesus Christ alone. It is His work, His merit, not ours. And then finally, even as we read in this passage, all of this grace, everything that God does is to not your glory, not to your credit, not for your sake primarily, but ultimately for the praise and glory of God, the God of sovereign grace. Now, it's, it's those ideas, those concepts, which God used uh, from 1517 on to reform and to revitalize the church, to separate it from all the problems that had accrued during the medieval church period, and to once again give to God's people God's word, but above all, the message of God's saving grace. And so today we're going to be looking at grace alone, that second sola in terms of the five solas that constitute really the foundation for this church and the foundation for any church that desires to be faithful to the preaching of the gospel of God. Now, when you think about these five solas, the first sola presents to us scripture as authoritative. The only authoritative word that God has given to us. Church tradition is an authority. The Nicene Creed doesn't have the authority of Scripture. Our Westminster Confession of Faith never has the authority of Scripture. What the church has taught, uh, the Roman church, never has the authority. It is the word of God that alone has supreme authority. So that tells us the foundation of all Reformation revival in the church. It must be in accordance with God's word. But then we look at the other solas, and we realize they describe how God saves us and then why God saves us. So the how of salvation is going to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then the why of salvation is ultimately it is all to the glory of God alone, uniquely to his glory. This morning then we're going to be looking at grace alone. Now, Dr. Michael Horton has remarked that the medieval Roman Catholic Church uh, also said that we believe in salvation by grace, but Catholic theology saw this grace as if it were some kind of substance that could be poured into somebody's soul uh, to change a person from a sinner to a saint, uh, from a rebel to a child of God. 
But at the same time, this grace was powerless. This grace couldn't do anything unless people were involved in a cooperation with God, a cooperation with God and His grace. It was vital, according to medieval Catholic theology, that human beings positively exercise their free will toward God or God was impotent. God couldn't really do anything unless man exercised his free will toward God to say, God, I'm ready, I'm willing, do what you can do with me. In fact, there was a medieval phrase that Horton points out that went like this, God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. You know, Benjamin Franklin put it this way, God helps those who help themselves. Do you know something like 85% of American Christians think that is in the Bible? Now, the Reformers grounded their understanding of God's grace in Scripture, Scripture alone, and they understood that the grace of God, now listen carefully to this, is both the source and the supply of salvation. That the grace of God is the source and the supply of every particular, every aspect of salvation. So that from beginning to end, salvation is completely, entirely, wholly the outworking of God's grace. That's why God saves us. And we do not in any respect save ourselves. All of the glory, all of the credit, all of the honor for our salvation goes to God and to God alone and His glories. Now, this understanding of grace is, in fact, good news. Uh, this is the gospel. This is the message of Christ and the apostles. This is the message of the Reformation. And this morning, our main concern here is to enable us to make sure that we have, without question, a biblical grasp, a biblical understanding that grace is the heart of the gospel. And, as Christians, we're called to bear witness to Christ and to the gospel. Now, I want you to think how Paul put it this way in Acts 20, 24. This is Paul's storyline. Paul expresses his purpose. He says this, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus Christ has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, the statement of Paul, his statement, his story, we need to connect with it. We need to recognize that what Paul just said there isn't uniquely Paul's. In fact, it's, it's the vital element of every truly authentic Christian life. We live as servants of Jesus Christ with a commission that we are called to testify to the gospel of God's grace. But that's only possible if we have a clear understanding and a clear command of the very nature of grace as we find it in Scripture. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning. What is the grace of God? And why are we saved by grace alone? Now to answer this, that question, so that we can be those who authentically, properly, responsibly, called by Christ to be his servants, can testify to the gospel of God's grace. That question we need to break down, analyze into six further questions 
that will help us to get a full grasp on what it means to proclaim that God's grace is truly the good news of the gospel. Now, the first question, grace, what is it? What does the word mean? The word grace belongs to the New Testament vocabulary of salvation, which is to say that grace presupposes that mankind is lost. Why have salvation unless you're talking about things that are lost? Mankind is in a lost condition. Mankind needs to be saved. Now, in that vocabulary of grace, we have these words in the New Testament, words like election, predestination, redemption, sacrifice, reconciliation, propitiation, calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, resurrection, perseverance, glorification. All of these words are related to or described as in the New Testament as grace or that which flows out of grace as its source. Now, grace itself has a particular circle of meaning in the New Testament. It's necessarily attached to the idea of gift, something which is given unconditionally, something that's given freely. So grace, if we were to define it, is God acting towards us, God treating us kindly and with favor, where such treatment is unearned, it is undeserved on our part as human beings. Now, that's what Paul is stating so very powerfully in this passage that we read, but I just want us to focus on verses 3 to 8 and highlight. In fact, if you're marking in your Bibles, which isn't a bad thing, you might underline these phrases. So verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Right there. He has blessed us. That's the beginning of the gift. Underline that. In Christ Jesus, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, So that's the next aspect of the blessing, the gift. He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, underline that, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Underline adoption. According to the purpose of His will, underline this, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He's blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have, underline this, redemption. Through his blood, underline this, the forgiveness of his trespasses. Then underline this, according to the riches of his grace. Underline this, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, notice how Paul frames all of this glorious grace. It is what blesses us. It is God choosing us. It flows out of God's eternal love. It brings about our being adopted as his sons. It brings us to redemption. It gives us forgiveness of our trespasses. And God lavishes it upon us richly. So Paul pulls together an assembly of words and phrases to emphasize as strongly as it can possibly be stressed that God's salvation toward us is holy and powerfully gracious and favorable and loving and kind which is why God's grace is to be considered glorious and worthy of all praise, God himself being gloriously praiseworthy because of his grace. Now, we could find so many passages in Scripture that reflect 
the, the believer's response to this. I thought about Psalm 34, the first two verses, where David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. In, in light of the praiseworthiness of the God of all grace, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in what? In the Lord. Because of his grace. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. If we're recipients of this grace, then at every moment in our lives, we have the strongest reason to be worshiping and praising God and making our boast in him because he is the God of all grace and he's granted this grace to us. Now, the second question is, but why is salvation this way? Why is it by grace? Why does it come as a gift? Well, because in the final analysis, when we look at the lost human condition, salvation can only be in one of two, one of two places. Uh, either salvation will be something God gives us because we've earned it, or salvation will be given to us because it is a gift. Uh, either we earn salvation so that God, according to his justice, must reward us with salvation, or salvation is on the principle of an unmerited gift which he graciously gives to us. It's one or the other. It's our merit or it's God's gift. Now, the New Testament is rather clear that we cannot earn our salvation. Listen to just a smattering of scriptural testimony. Romans 3.20 For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Or Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God before God by the law. Galatians 5:19-21, where Paul describes fallen, unsaved human nature. He says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, who among us has not been guilty of at least some of the things in that list? That's what fallen human nature is like. So how could we expect when our nature commits these kinds of things that we could ever somehow justify ourselves before God by our good works? Now, in contrast, then, Scripture says that salvation is a gift. So even that by itself tells us it can't be by works. Romans 3, 21 to 24. Right in the middle of this, the word gift is going to show up in a paramount way. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 5, 15 through 17. Listen to this passage. 
and the emphasis upon gift. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through one man's trespass, making reference to Adam and Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's sin... For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul stresses in those three verses, free gift five times. And then Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that has both sides. Uh, Sinners cannot save themselves because the wages of sin is death, but God himself must do the saving and it comes as a free gift. Now I have a number of other scriptures connected with that, but I must move on to say Paul is stating clearly, if you have to earn your salvation, it isn't a gift and it would not be of grace. Salvation is a gift. Therefore, it is not by works. Therefore, we do not in any way whatsoever earn our salvation. Now, a number of places in Scripture then go on to raise this question about the nature of God's grace. Just when did God give us this gift? When did God give us this gift of the grace of his salvation? Or to put it this way, when does saving grace first get connected to us when we become Christians? Well, the New Testament answer is this. We got connected to the grace of God in God's mind and in God's plan in eternity past. Now, note what Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul writes how God, who saved us and who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So here Paul brings out how we are saved by grace apart from works, but he also declares that God's purpose to save us and the grace which does save us were given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The NIV translation says, before the beginning of time. And of course, that echoes what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So God connected us to his grace before he ever created the world. Now, I want to say that one of the most, one of the deepest meditations that you and I could ever have is to meditate upon this truth about your salvation. As you sit here today, 
as individuals saved by the grace of God in Christ. You should think back that before the world was ever created, God the Father had you, your life, your entire life, and your salvation planned. He thought about you, connected you in his thoughts to grace and the plan of his grace with his son, Jesus Christ. Your salvation isn't an accident. Your salvation didn't begin with you one day. Your salvation began in the heart and mind of God in eternity past. God has been thinking about you from eternity past. And thinking about you with every aspect of his thought framed by grace. Should that not change everything about how you see life? Should, should that not be the deepest kind of encouragement to you? No matter how awful and challenging and difficult life is and becomes... That nevertheless, whatever things are right now, God had thought about you and all of your life and connected it to his grace to save you back then. But that's not the whole story. Jesus tells us that what God did back then, he did for Jesus. Because what Jesus tells us is when, when God the Father thought about us and connected us to His grace in eternity past, Jesus says, this was the Father giving you as a gift to me. Jesus says that, 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 that this grace that's connected to all those who are saved, the Father in the eternal counsels with His Son had actually given us who are saved as a gift from the Father to the Son. It's not just that salvation is a gift, but our salvation is a gift from the Father to the Son. Now look how Jesus says this. We find this in, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, 37 to 39. Listen. Jesus is saying, and this is a, a powerful salvation passage about the nature of the way God's grace works. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I've come down from heaven to do my, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none. Now, in logic, we learn to invert a negative like that. I shall lose none means I shall save all. I shall lose none of all that he has given me. I shall save all of those that he has given to me and raise them up on the last day. Or in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And then you jump further in John chapter 10, where Jesus continues these thoughts about the shepherd and the sheep. And here's what he says, verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his 11 disciples where he also prays for those who are going to believe through the apostolic witness as it goes out into the world. He says, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be where I am. So the grace of God first gets connected to us in eternity past when the Father makes a gift of those who are going to be redeemed, those who are going to be called by grace, the Father makes a gift of them to the Son. So, what is grace? It's the grace of of being given to the Son, redeemed by the Son, prayed for by the Son, kept safe by the Son, granted eternal life by the Son, and destined to be finally with the Son where He is with the Father. Now that is the doctrine of predestination and election. It is all about the Father giving us to His Son, even before the world began. So this grace is connected to us in eternity past, but then the question becomes, well then, but when does it become active here and now in our lives? Or put it another way, did God take the first step toward us, or do we take the first step toward Him? Well, consider how carefully the Apostle Paul answers this in Ephesians chapter 2, if you wanted to turn there. Paul there writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. The apostle sums up those first five verses by saying, all of this is to tell you that it is by grace that you have been saved. So Paul puts it this way. We were dead. We were dead spiritually. The devil was at work in us. Uh, he was working in us so that we actively carried out the deeds of the flesh, the passions in the mind, 
In other words, there's not any indication here that somehow in us there was a first step toward God. Not at all. Verses 4 and 5 says, no, here's the condition. While we were in a God-opposing condition, while we were opposite in everything we were to God, God took the first step. God took the most necessary step. Out of God's rich mercy, God made us alive. And then declaring to us, it is by grace you have been saved. Not just that God takes a first step, some kind of first tiny step, but God takes the entire step forward. He translates us from death to life. Jesus taught the same thing. In John chapter 3, he's having that incredibly significant spiritual discussion with Nicodemus, who was a teacher of the Jews. And in John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, our first birth leaves us dead spiritually, dead in our trespasses and sins, doomed to follow the ways of this world, the ways of Satan. But to save us, God must first make us alive by his grace. Unless we have new life from God, unless we are born again, unless we are regenerated by the work of God, we can't even see the kingdom. If we can't see it, we can't understand it, we can't hear what's going on, we can't see the king of the kingdom, nothing. When we are dead, in the state of being dead, we can't trust Jesus because we can't even see who he really is. Only when we've been made alive by the grace of God can we then desire to trust Christ. God must do this work in us. Now, in spite of his theological slant, Charles Wesley, uh, seeking to describe the working of God's grace biblically, is, is virtually compelled to get it right in this great hymn, And Can It Be? Fourth stanza, which we've sung. Wesley writes this way about his own experience. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound. Get it? Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God's eye, diffused a quickening ray. The word quickening ray there means regeneration. Quickening in the Old English meant regeneration, making alive. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. And Wesley responds, I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart set free. I rose, went forward, and followed thee. What has to happen before we can ever take a step toward God? God must take the first step. Dead men do not move. Dead men spiritually take no steps toward God. It isn't that we're sick, God must heal us. It's we're dead, we must be resurrected. We must be made born again. God must give us life. So we passed from death to life, from darkness to light, from night to day, in order for us to embrace Christ. Now that's why in another hymn writer, this would be hymn 471 if you wanted to look it up, the writer says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be, this heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. 
Thou from the sin that stained me hast cleansed and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained that I should live for thee. Twas sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My own, my heart owns none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Which is exactly what John the Apostle says, 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God's grace is prior to our response to God. God works in those he's given to his Son to enable them to seek him, which is why Jesus said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, there's a further question to help us understand this. Is this grace of God, is it enough to do everything? Or isn't there yet something we need to contribute to the grace of God? Is there something we need to add in order to secure our salvation? Well, Paul's own experience in his Christian life answers us that it is the grace of God, the grace of Christ, Christ that's fully sufficient. In fact, it's, it's not just Paul telling us this, it's Jesus telling Paul this truth. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10. In the midst of the deep struggles Paul was having with that messenger from Satan, that thorn in the flesh, Paul says, take it away, please. And Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response is, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus put it this way, Apart from me, you can do nothing. And Paul puts it this way, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then Paul puts both things together when he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So the New Testament teaches that it's the grace of God that saves us. It's the grace of God that keeps us saved. It's the grace of God that works in us. It is God's sufficient grace that enables us to do anything and everything pleasing to him. And perhaps the best statement from Paul is found in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul describes it this way. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's speaking of the apostolic work and others. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. So the Apostle Paul gave all of the outworking of his Christian life, all the monumental labors which he performed as an apostle, all the working harder than anyone else. He gave the credit not to himself, not to his works, not to his effort, but to the grace of God working in his life. God got all of the glory because God's grace was sufficient to do it all. God's grace means that we have nothing to boast. The last question about grace shouldn't have to be asked, given what we've said so far. 
Grace can have only one outcome. But the question is this. Is this grace finally fully successful? Will this grace complete the work that has begun in us? Or is it possible that this grace will prove to be incomplete in us and we might yet be lost? Well, it seems as though Jesus had this very question in mind uh, back in that Good Shepherd passage in John chapter 10 when he said in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then to emphasize their security and salvation, he goes on to say in verse 29, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Jesus is saying that all of the sheep whom the Father has given to him are held in the almighty hands of the Son and the Father together. Then to climax this thought, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They are both one in the Godhead, and they are one together in their power to eternally secure and to eternally save. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I need to come to the conclusion. But I want you to listen to how this all comes together in our lives as Christians and in terms of our story. The working of God's grace, the fact that the gospel is the proclamation of the grace of God. That should be your story. That should be my story. It is the true story of every Christian who has ever lived. So listen to this Christian story. This is his, this is his story rewritten as though he is expressing it himself. He says, I was born in 1725 and I died in 1807. The only godly influence in my life, as far back as I can remember, was my mother, whom I only had for the first seven years of my life. Uh, when she left my life through death, I was virtually an orphan. My mother, my father remarried. He sent me to a strict military school where the severity of the discipline almost broke my back. I couldn't stand it anymore. I left in rebellion at the age of 10. A year later, deciding that I would never have any formal education again, I became a seaman apprentice, hoping somehow to step into my father's trade and at least learn to be able to navigate skillfully a ship. By and by, through a process of time, I slowly gave myself over to the devil. And I determined that I would send to my fill without any restraint now that the righteous light of my life had been gone, had been put out. I did that until my days in the military service where, again, discipline worked hard against me, but I further rebelled. My spirit would not break, and I became increasingly more and more of a rebel. Uh, because of a number of things that I disagreed with in the military, I finally deserted only to be captured like a common criminal and beaten publicly several times. After enduring this punishment, I fled. I entertained thoughts of suicide on my way to Africa, deciding that that would be the place I could get furthest from anyone who knew me. And again, I made a pact with the devil to live for him. Somehow, through a process of events, I got in touch with a Portuguese slave trader, and I lived in his home. 
He was married to a black wife who was brimming with hostility and took it out on me. She beat me, and I ate like a dog on the floor of the house. If I refused to do that, she would whip me with a leash. I fled penniless, owning only the clothes on my back to the shoreline of Africa where I built a fire, hoping to attract a ship that was passing by. The skipper thought I had gold or slaves to sell that he could buy. I was surprised to learn that I was a skilled navigator. And it was there that I virtually lived for a long period of time. It was a slave ship. It was not uncommon for as many as 600 blacks from Africa to be in the hold of the ship down below being taken to America. I went through all kinds of narrow escapes from death, only a hair's breadth away on a number of occasions. One time I opened a case of rum and got everybody on the crew drunk. The skipper, incensed with my actions, beat me threw me down below. I lived on stale bread and sour vegetables for an unendurable amount of time. He brought me above to beat me again, and I fell overboard. Because I couldn't swim, he harpooned me to get me back on the ship. And I lived with a scar in my side big enough for me to put my fist into until the day of my death. On board, I was inflamed with fever. I was enraged with humiliation. A storm broke out, and I wound up again down in the hold of the ship, deep among the pumps. To keep the ship afloat, I worked along as a slave, as a servant of the slaves. There, bruised, confused, bleeding, diseased, I was the epitome of a degenerate man. I remembered the words of my mother. I cried out to God the only way I knew, calling upon His grace and mercy to deliver me and upon His Son to save me. The only glimmer of light I could find was a crack in the ship in the floor above me, and I looked up to it and screamed for help, and God heard me. Thirty-one years passed. I married a childhood sweetheart. I entered the ministry, and every place that I served, rooms had to be added to the building to handle the crowds that came to hear the gospel that was presented and the story of God's grace in my life. My tombstone above my head reads, Born 1725, died 1807, a clerk once, an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he once long labored to destroy. I decided upon my death to put my life story in verse. And that verse has become a hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So lived, so wrote John Newton. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, oh... Even this brief message this morning cannot extol the fullness of your grace that has saved us. And Father, though our story may not be as bleak and as black as that of John Newton, nevertheless we identify with him. It is amazing grace that has saved us. O Lord, we praise you this morning for the grace of the gospel, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace that found us when we were lost and has saved us and redeemed us. We praise you and thank you. In Christ's glorious name, amen.